Shabbat Shalom. It's good to see everyone here today. We are uh, coming into the fall, and so we're getting ready for all of our festivals. We're super excited about that. These are marks of identity. These are identity issues. When we keep our Father's calendar, we're identified with Him and He with us. And so these days are like a really big deal for all of us. So I'm going to talk about the biblical holy days. Every spiritual person celebrates holy days. We were made with a felt need for times of celebration. It's inside of our hearts. Even the world has its regular occasions for merriment. For the followers of Jesus, we have our times already set and spelled out for us. They are called the appointed times in the Bible. These are special sacred times that God promises to meet us in unique and powerful ways. They are filled with blessings, purpose, and meaning. They also serve as types and shadows of Jesus and everything that he's going to accomplish. So in keeping them, we remain focused and centered in Jesus. And this is by far an essential reason why we keep them. So if you want to be focused on and centered in Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, we encourage you to embrace and keep the biblical holy days. So where are these in the Bible? Where does it all begin when we talk about God's calendar, God's holy days? We jump all the way back to one of the earliest books of the Bible, one of the five books of the Torah of Moses called Leviticus. And in chapter 23, we find the holy days. Moses says, or actually God through Moses says, the Lord spoke again to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Now keep that verse up for just one minute. Everyone always says, yeah, that's given to the Jews. It says right there, speak to the people of Israel. You know, that's, that's for them. I'm not, I'm not part of that. Yes, you are. You put your faith in Jesus, the Jew, the Jewish Savior. He grafted you into the olive tree of Israel, Romans 11. You're a citizen in Israel of God, Ephesians chapter 2. You're a part of Israel. And so when he gives these things to Israel, they are given to you as well. And these are the appointed times. And they are also holy convocations. Again, an appointed time is a set-apart time. God, God makes sacred time itself. He doesn't just make things holy. He makes time holy. And so he sets apart these times as appointments to meet with us in unique and special ways. And they're convocations. God says you can't stay in your homes. You got to come out and gather together at these appointed times. It's in this context that we find rest and worship instruction, feasting, and rejoicing. In fact, we call them the days of our rejoicing. So God has given that to us knowing that we have this need to rest once in a while and to celebrate and to sing and to dance and to fellowship and to receive instruction. He knew that, so he gave us these days to structure our lives so that we're governed by him 
rather than the world who would like to take all of your time 24-7 for a buck and never give you rest or seasons to rejoice in. God says, you're my son, you're my daughter. I have these times for you to enjoy and rest and relax because in me you are free. Now, let's jump in to the first appointment, the first appointed time. You'll note that this one comes around every week. For six days, work may be done. But on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation, a holy assembly. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Every week. The seventh day, corresponding to Saturday, beginning of Friday sunset to Saturday at sunset, that's our time to be with God, to be with each other, to be with our families. We got six days to do all our work and do all that stuff that we need to do to pay the bills, right? We mow our lawns then, we do our laundry then. We come to the seventh day, we got that set aside, it's beautified, it's, it's time to chill, time to have a cold one, water on ice or whatever, you know? And to have a big meal, and to sing, and to dance, and to fellowship, to be in his word, to study, to commune with one another every week. What does it say? What does it say? It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwellings, wherever you're at on the face of the earth. This day is his day. It belongs to the Lord. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. It is the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day. The seventh day. Isn't that interesting? Ancient concept. He later tells us to make that day holy for ourselves. Let me jump down to the eight holy days. These are the eight holy days. They come around once a year. There's eight of them, which is interesting in and of itself. That's another sermon. And within those eight holy days, guess how many appointed times there are? 10, because some of these have more than one holy day associated with them. So you have 10 appointed times, which is interesting because he has 10 commandments too. Number 10 is a very powerful number when you look at it in scripture. So I think it's one of God's favorite numbers. But let's look at these eight holy days. We have three that come in the spring. We call them the spring festivals, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits. Then we have one in the summer, it's called Shavuot, or better known as Pentecost. And then we have three more in the fall, actually four in the fall, Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and the eighth day. Those are the eight annual holy days of our Father in heaven that he's given to us because they reveal and glorify and magnify his Son. These days are big for God because it, it magnifies who his son is. And his son magnifies who the father is. So these de days are essential, essential to the way of life at, that we have as believers. Now, keeping in mind that Jesus is revealed in the festivals and that he's foreshadowed and prefigured in these holy days, and that he is the fulfillment of what is represented in them, we'll take a closer look. First the natural, then the spiritual. So, 
the weekly appointed time, the Shabbat. It's the place of grace and blessing, isn't it? Go all the way back to Eden when it was first given, the seventh day. Can you imagine that? We are created at the end of the sixth day. If you look at the creation, we're the final creative act of God late in the, in the sixth day. And right after he makes us, guess what? It transitions into the seventh day, the day of rest, where God ceases everything that he has done. It's done. He says it's good. And what does he do? He relaxes and spends time with us. Our first experience with God, the Shabbat. The first experience is a day of rest where we receive everything by grace. We do nothing. We just receive, right? We have God's favor, God's provision, God's blessing. Our first experience is the Shabbat, which in the scriptures is the place of grace. Now we're provided within this Shabbat that physical rest that we all need. The older you get, the more you'll realize that. It is so sweet to be able to rest and relax and be renewed. Spiritually, well, Jesus fulfills that. In him, we have spiritual rest for our souls. In him, we find this place of grace where our spiritual needs are met where spiritual provision is given and spiritual blessings are poured out. In fact, it says concerning Jesus, in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. If you're in Christ, all the promises of God are yours. Let's look at the eight appointed times. Passover, Passover, a picture of salvation. First, the physical, the natural. We see physical salvation by the blood of the Lamb from the wrath of God that he poured out on Egypt. Spiritually speaking, well, there's a spiritual salvation by the blood of Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, from the coming wrath of God to be poured out on this world for its rebellion and hatred of God and all that is good. That coming wrath of God is the ultimate wrath of God. Egypt and what he did will pale in significance to what he does to the world when he comes. And we're saved from that coming wrath in Jesus, the Lamb of God. That was pictured for us back in Egypt. Unleavened bread. We move from salvation to sanctification. We were saved in Egypt, but that he's going to deliver us out of Egypt. So unleavened bread represents that sanctification. We see that in Egypt, we're delivered from the dominion of Pharaoh. And what did Pharaoh wear on his head? Help me out. Cobra, he had a little cobra snake. Is that my snake? Boom. Yeah, he had a serpent. A crown with a serpent because that was a symbol of Egypt. It was the kingdom of darkness represented in the serpent. Satan's chief symbol. He's the snake in the garden. And God delivers his people from the dominion of the serpent kingdom. And that pointed forward to Jesus, right? Because in Jesus, we have this spiritual de uh, deliverance from the dominion of Satan and sin and death itself. We then move into first fruits. This is all about the early spring harvest, the first, 
the first edible stuff to come out of the earth, that early harvest, is called first fruits. It represents life, new life. It's springtime, right? It represents a new life far away from Egypt in the promised land. And in Jesus is fulfilled, right? In him, we have a new life. We're a new creation in him. We have this new dominion, the realm of, this, of the kingdom of God, in contrast to the kingdom of the serpent. Then we move into Shavuot in the summer month, months. If we look back physically to that first Shavuot, it was all about becoming the people of God, Israel. They became the people of God at Sinai, and he gave them the law and the spirit on Sinai. In fact, he wrote the law in stone with his own finger, spoke it with his own mouth, and wrote it with his own finger. And then later on in Jesus, as a result of his death and his resurrection, Israel is reconstituted, is raised. She fell away in apostasy. And in Jesus, she's raised up again. There we have the people of God again. And the law and the spirit are poured out in Jerusalem. The Spirit enters everyone who believes in Jesus, and the Torah is written on their hearts. It's now part of who we are. So it's fulfilled. You see this natural and then spiritual you know, fulfillment. You see in the natural, the type and shadow, and then you see, see in Jesus the fulfillment of that. And the fulfillment doesn't do away with it. It brings it, in, it, it, it in, into its fullness, Right? The Torah is written on our heart now. I get to walk that out by the Spirit of God. That, that is the fullness of what God intended when he gave it all the way back at Sinai. Yom Teruah, the day of blowing shofars. So there, there's a lot of meanings tied into the blowing of the shofar. See Pastor Chris for details. Um, and we want to encourage you, get some shofars off Amazon. Buy some shofars, get at least one, and bring it to every festival. Everyone, bring your shofars. We blow them like crazy during those days, right? Except Yom Kippur. Do not bring yours to Yom Kippur. <laughs> we'll have to lock it up in the back. It's the only one. That's another sermon. Okay. Yom Teruah. What does the shofar mean? One of the primary meanings or, or, or purposes of the shofar was that they would blow those whenever they had a new king. When he was instituted over Israel or brought in in his coronation, they would blow the trumpets at his coronation, the coronation of a new king. Now that finds his fulfillment in God as our king. When he led us out of Egypt, we put our faith and trust in the God of Israel who is our king, king over all. And then that's fulfilled in Jesus because what does God do? He steps off his throne and then he takes his son and introduces him as the new king, the king of kings and lord of lords, and gives him the scepter to rule. So the blowing of the shofar is all about proclaiming, declaring that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. In Yom Kippur, we have a national day, a national day in which we have atonement, forgiveness, and cleansing from sin. In Jesus, it's even better. It reaches its heights. In him, the Lamb of God, we have this corporate cleansing and forgiveness, but it's eternal. It's an eternal redemption. It doesn't have to be done. He doesn't have to be crucified every year 
because his blood poured out was eternal life. Therefore, it provides an eternal atonement. And in him, not only a cleansing and a forgiveness, but he's going to come and remove our sin from our world. In the new creation, there will be no more sin. It's removed forever. Sukkot, tabernacles, right? It's in that celebration that God promises to dwell with us. And the symbol, of course, is the tabernacle. He told Moses, build me a tabernacle. They built a big tabernacle for him in the wilderness. They all lived in little tabernacles. He lived in a big tabernacle, right? He had a big tent. We all had little tents. Why was his big tent? Why did he say, build me a big tent? He wanted to dwell with us. So where'd they put his tent? Right smack in the middle of all their tents. It was a picture of God's promise to come and dwell with us. And we see that fulfilled in Yeshua's incarnation. Spiritually, what is the fulfillment? Well, Jesus, who is in fact God, he's with God and is God, Emmanuel, God with us, he took on a human body. That's called the incarnation, when God became a man. And he was born. When he was born, John describes his birth in John chapter 1 as him taking a tabernacle of human flesh and blood to dwell in. He uses the language of tabernacles, connecting tabernacles with the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, God's dwelling presence with us in a way that we never anticipated, right? So it's at Sukkot, it's at tabernacles that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, right? Joy to the world, right? People think you're crazy. Isn't that December 25th? No, but thank you. That's another sermon. Okay, got like three or four lined up already. All right. The eighth day, the final one, comes at the end of Sukkot. The eighth day, the number of new creation, new beginnings. God promised to dwell with this forever. And ultimately, in Jesus, we become new creations destined to dwell with him in a new heavens and a new earth that's immortalized and indestructible. It cannot be done away with. Amazing in every way. All right. Those are the festivals. Those are the holy days. They're all about Jesus. If you want your understanding of Jesus enhanced, if you want a better clarity of who he is and what he's going to accomplish, it's the holy days. These are the revelations of who he is. I think sometimes we're really confused about who Jesus is and what he's going to do because we haven't always practiced these holy days. You know? I, I, yeah, I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid growing up, I'm always thinking, is like Santa Claus Jesus' grandfather? Because he had the big white beard, you know? And, and I was always confused about all the imagery tied into some of these days. But when I came into the biblical holy days, all of that changed. And I could see clearly now who Jesus was. And it's been just an incredible, joyful journey ever since. So people say, you know, a lot of times, not in the first century, but now, so many centuries removed. But we don't have to keep these holy days, right? We don't have to keep them. 
Really? Now here's some popular but misunderstood texts. These are the go-to texts that people use for why we don't have to keep the holy days. First one's Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. You're familiar with these. You've heard it. Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. He says, don't let anyone judge you in this. Oh, see, I don't have to do them. Don't judge me. Don't judge me for not doing them. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, don't let anyone judge you for not doing them? It's actually the opposite. They were already doing them. They were keeping these days, and there were these uh, Jewish Gnostics who were coming in saying, no, 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 that's not how you do it. Instead of eating and being joyful, you can't eat. You've got to have this harsh treatment of the body because the body's evil, you know, and you've got to do all these requirements, you know, or you're not really keeping the days. And Paul said, hey, don't let people judge you in how you keep these days. They're not your judges. You have liberty in Christ to celebrate these days that are given to us by our Father in heaven. Let no one pass judgment on you in regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Why? Because these are shadows of things to come. The, the holy days are shadows of things to come. There's things coming in our future tied into Jesus, his return, all that he's going to accomplish when he returns, the judgment that's coming, the rewards at the Bema Seat of Messiah. So much is tied into these holy days that are still coming. That when we keep them, it gives us a framework reference of our future, not just our past, our present, but also what's coming. These are shadows of the things that are coming. And it goes on to say, the substance belongs to Christ. Yeah, the reality of all that is in him. He's the fulfillment of that. If you want to know about what's coming and what he's going to fulfill, it's tied into these days. Of course we would keep these. Paul's saying, just don't let people judge you in how to do this, because you already know how to do it with great joy and great vigor. This is our heritage that's been given to us. Jesus is the one that casts the shadow. People sometimes think of the shadow in a negative way. How could it be negative? It's Jesus. It's the shadow of Jesus. If you follow the shadow, you're going to bump into Jesus, who's casting the shadow. The shadows are designed to bring you to Christ. That's why we teach the next generation. That's why we have our kids doing all of these festivals. Why? Because those festivals orientate them so they can have an encounter with Jesus and be saved like we were. And then have an orientation of the future and what God expects of them. Keeping these holy days keep us focused on Jesus and they keep us centered in him. Okay, Romans chapter 14, 5 through 6. Here's the other go-to passage. doesn't matter. We don't have to keep the Shabbat. It doesn't matter. Just keep any day or keep no day, you know. We're in a, no obligation. Paul even says that in Romans chapter 14, 5 and 6. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. In other words, one person, he says this day is holy. Another person says, no, they're all the same. He says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. You think that's talking about holy days? 
Let's take a closer look. Romans chapter 14, I'll begin at the top. We'll make our way down. Paul says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Notice what we're, what we're talking about here, right? Not commandments, opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted them. Vegetarianism versus meat eaters. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Shift gears a little bit. Now we're going to talk about days. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord. Did you catch that? He who observes the day does so for the Lord, but he who eats also does for the Lord. What's the observance all about? What's he observing? Sounds like a fast day. One person's not eating because he's observing the day. The other person eats, but he's eating for the glory of God. Sounds like fast days, right? Let's go on. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Eating and not eating. Fast days. This is what we're talking about. Let's put up our next slide, slide 25. In the Didache, this is an ancient, ancient document going all the way back to the beginning of really the second century, actually even earlier, some put it in the first century. Um, they had fast days. And these, these are, this is a document written basically uh, by our earliest church authorities. And this is what they say to the believers in Messiah. But do not let your fasts coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday. So you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. Now just hold that up for a minute. Early, early, early in the first century, we have this phenomenon of fast days. Fast days were very important for the Jewish community. And uh, what they were observing at that period of time was fast days on Mondays and Thursdays. But because the unbelieving community was persecuting the believing community, the leaders in the believing community says, don't fast on their days. Instead of Monday and Thursday, fast on Wednesday and Friday. You see how fast days are important? And yet they're not commanded in the Bible. We call those opinions. What are the days that we should fast on? Well, that's a matter of opinion. Therefore, don't judge each other on your opinions related to fast days. If you say this day is an important day, this is the day we should fast, you fast on that. And your brother who's eating is not violating anything. Leave him alone. He doesn't observe the day. It's a matter of opinion. Fast days are not commandments. They're matters of opinion. And obviously, that's what, what Paul is talking about in this passage. Paul, he's not talking about which days to fast on. He's saying, you choose. That's a matter of conscience. You choose which day you want to observe. He's not talking about the Shabbat. That's a commandment. If Paul was saying, oh, the commandment about Shabbat doesn't matter, they would have ran him out for soliciting lawlessness. This context is about fasting. 
not holy days. All right, so I think I'm going to go all the way down to my conclusion because I'm out of time. When it comes to worship days, they're very, very important to the Father, and they're very important to His Son who kept these days as a way of life. In John chapter 4, 22 through 24, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now I might have time for a question, so be thinking of a question. Okay. The Father desires to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He seeks those who will worship Him according to His calendar, His appointed times. You don't get to create your own, and if you do, good for you. But He's saying, hey, you want to worship me? My eyes are on those who worship in spirit and in truth, right? Verse 24, for God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the truth is, he's already given to us the worship days, the holy days. All we need to do is embrace those and walk in those and enjoy those. And in doing so, we are kept in Messiah. In doing so, we are focused on Jesus. In doing so, our kids will grow up and love him because they get a clear picture of him as seen in what the Father has given to us. So I want to encourage everyone to step more fully into the festivals and learn more about them and do them. You know, you don't have to worry about if you're new because they come around every year and you just learn more and more as you go along and the joy increases.